and are stopped along the way by so many thirsty men they have to run back for more. On Saturday night, when the streets are extravagant with stacked purple cabbages, ruby apples, bright green leeks, fringing stalls iridescent with oyster shells, everyone feels rich. There will be meat on Sunday, and when a favourite customer comes to buy his chops, the expansive butcher holds out a newly slaughtered pig's heart like a present. It is Saturday night. Work is another two days away. Sunday you may play cards or walk out on the town moor, or if you're feeling guilty about something, wash your face and go to church. Perhaps you'll just want to sleep, which is what happens most Sundays, when you take your tea on the stool by the fire and realise how good it feels just to sit and stare until your head drops down upon your chest and your cup slips from your fingers. But Saturday night you are alive and want some entertainment. Two new shows have come to town. One is about that disease everyone keeps talking about, the cholera morbus. But the second one sounds far more promising. The spectacle unique Les Chats Savants, Signor Capelli's celebrated menagerie of sagacious cats, well known in the principal cities of Europe, whose docility and intelligence never fail to astonish. You could certainly stand to be delightfully astonished, since the astonishment you'll receive tomorrow, when you learn half the plums you bought tonight are rotted through, will be decidedly less pleasant. You push your way between the stalls along Low Street, headed toward the theatre on Sands. On your right, the River Weir makes a snaking black ribbon between Sunderland proper and well-lit Monk Wearmouth on the opposite shore. There are fewer ships on the river because of the quarantine, you think, and it is killing everyone, from the keelmen who load Newcastle coal to the potteries that need imported Dorset clay. Your backroom matchstick factory is safe at least, no matter what happens. For ten years you've painted phosphorus tips on little wooden splinters, and you've never for a day done without supplies. The phosphorus is slowly rotting your jawbone and turning you into a freakish mess you can't bear to look in the glass. But tonight, Saturday night, you want only to see some sagacious cats and not think about how your hands and face glow in the dark. Outside the cheap theatre, where children and domestics get in half price, as if life weren't easy enough for them anyway, you come upon a stampede. Housemaids leap squealing into coachmen, little boys stomp, stomp, stomp like Indians in a rain dance. It's those damn frogs. They've come up from the riverbed, where they've been fucking and spawning, fucking and spawning all this wet, warm autumn, until they've overflowed the steep banks and invaded the town. Merchants along Low Street have found moist green frogs suffocated in their flour. The pastor of Trinity Church found them floating in the communion wine. Just last night your landlord cursed the chorus of frogs yowling in his basement and sent down his ferret to rip through them. Now it seems the frogs are headed toward the nicer part of town. They're advancing on Bishop Wearmouth, the third and by far the most affluent section of Sunderland, built on higher ground to the south. Good, you think. Let a little of the river bottom come up in the world. Let a lawyer or two lie awake and worry, like you have on too many nights, that the Lord has sent a modern plague of Egypt to destroy this town. How those dainty domestics and little children carry on, jabbing their umbrellas at flailing rubbery legs, frightening the frogs far more than they themselves are frightened. 
You roll your eyes and dig into your pocket for the fivepence they extort from you at the box office. Reach across to hand the rouged ticket vendor your money, but if you please wait just a moment. Before you duck inside, dear matchstick painter, and disappear from view for what will be at least two hours, we beg leave to ask what might at first seem a frivolous question, but which will eventually make sense. If you were to compose your own story, forgetting for a moment the small fact that you cannot exactly write, would you choose this Saturday night, outside of this cheap theatre, through this veil of frogs, in which to introduce your heroine? If you might have at your command the entire globe, any moment of historic confluence, if you might, in the writing of a humble book, bring back to life a Queen of Sheba or an Empress Josephine, would you strew her path with frogs here in dirty Sunderland, when you might pluck from your imagination green emeralds to scatter before her in Zanzibar? No, we thought not. You are a personage of refined taste. Left up to you, who is to say this book might not evolve into a tender tale of a matchstick painter, whose matches so delight the King of Sicily that he dedicates his palace to her private use, festoons it with pearls, and causes the British royal family to hold her quartz and lapis phosphorus pots. If the story were in your hands, we might expect no unpleasantness, no murder or blackest betrayal, for you are not of a punishing nature. And yet... Dear matchstick painter, your growing suspicions are correct. This is not your story. This is ours. And you have been summoned, led through the marketplace, encouraged to see this entertainment over the tedious play on cholera morbus down the street, for solely that purpose, to provide us with an introduction to our true heroine, who, if you'll turn around, is walking down Sand Street toward you, carefully picking her way across the unctuous carpet of frogs. Don't be upset, dear friend. We can't all of us be heroes. Though we met you first, we shouldn't feel compelled to follow your tiresome life, from the factory, home, to the public house for a warm beer every third night, the whole process repeating itself ad nauseam. You have a purpose in the machinery of this book, and though it is not large, it is necessary. We've brought you here to describe her to us, we being too far away in time and space to form a clear impression. Please, dear friend, keep us in suspense no longer. Is she lovely? Plain? Young? Old? First impressions are difficult to shake, dear friend, so please be precise. Begin with her face. It is thin, you say, but well-formed. Has she not the snub nose and round cheeks of so many Sunderland girls, whose raw ancestors tramped down from Scotland, or washed ashore, lo, those many centuries ago, from pork-fed Saxony? Oh, hers is a more Gaulish beauty, if you dare to use the term as a compliment barely fifteen years after Waterloo, with delicate arching brows, a reasonably straight nose, and large, dark, almost navy blue eyes. Her slightly sunken cheeks are drizzled with light freckles. Hereditary, you would wager, for surely freckles coaxed out by a pleasant day at the shore would not sit so starkly against white skin. And she is very pale. Her face and exposed arms are the colour of cooling milk, faintly blue in the bucket. They possess the sort of pallor that scatters light, the sort of luminescence that great ladies, it is rumoured, take small tastes of arsenic to achieve. 
Hers is the skin of a girl who never sees the light of day. And her hair, what of her hair? Such skin must set off a deep brunette mane or a fiery halo of red. No, you say? She's blonde, with hair almost as pale as her skin, worn in a complicated style known in fashionable circles as an Apollo. Her tresses braided and wrapped into a topknot at the crown, while little blonde ringlets are left to frizz at her temples. An ornament which, if decorating the tresses of a lady, would be a gilt arrow to honour the slayer of Python, but on our heroine is a pigeon feather dyed red, bisects the knot, and completes the Apollo. But we are confused. Is our heroine not a lady? Are we to go through this novel in the company of some commonplace Sunderland slut, not invited to any fancy parties, fed on boiled potatoes and beer, when we might in some other novel have prawns and champagne? You said she has the pallor of a lady, wears her hair after the fashion of the day. How is she dressed, pray tell? By her clothes, surely we will know her. Her dress is blue, how descriptive. But of what colour blue? Yes, of course, in better years we too attended spectacles where nymphs and water sprites yearned for mortal men, where mermaids brushed their hair and admired themselves in flashing mirrors. You would have us picture then the backdrop of that theatrical sea, the billows of cyan silk, the azure pasteboard waves, the ultramarine netting tangled with seahorses and starfishes flung to represent an aquatic paradise. We will close our eyes and do as you command. Ah, how cool they look while we sweat in the theatre of a hot summer's